Welcome to the Commentary Magazine podcast for today, May 11th, 2022. I'm Noah Rothman, and with us, as always, is senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, Noah. Executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, Noah. John is still out, but we are in the saddle, as always. Before we begin, uh, an illustrious show full of stuff we've definitely prepared, because we've spent a lot of time preparing today. Promise. You'll see. Uh, quick note, yesterday we ended the show with a, a series of shameless plugs, hawking our wares, mine in particular, my forthcoming book coming out, and uh, just said, you know, give it, a, give it a shot, pre-order if you could. I really appreciate it. It matters a lot to the publishers. And you guys really delivered. When I checked Amazon yesterday morning, um, the book, which isn't even out yet, so it's expected, was somewhere around like 400,000 in the books that exist on Amazon. And as of this morning, it was around 12,000. That's a lot of movement, and it's all due to you listeners. So um, pat yourselves on the back. I really appreciate it. And we will never let our advertisers or anyone else forget the extent to which this show moves units, um, which is a big deal. We really appreciate it. Um, I want to start, I suppose, with yesterday's speech by President Joe Biden. We got a brief um, we got a brief preview of it via the Reuters News uh, Service. Um, it was a political speech. It was billed as a political speech. It was all about inflation. But the Biden administration's intention now is to stop focusing on the gimmicky piecemeal efforts they're doing to attempt to arrest um, your de- depreciating purchasing power, rapidly decreasing purchasing power and rising consumer costs. But they're going to make it a political issue, a political football. Um, Uh, To quote one anonymous White House official to really sum up the philosophy at work here um, that the president was trying to convey, um, he said the following, Republicans love to use inflation as a political talking point, but does anyone have a clue what their plan is to bring down prices? Um, That's an extraordinary admission against interest, in my view, Uh, and the president subsequently in a meandering, rambling speech that only touched, I suppose, on the themes he thought he was going to convey, but probably communicated, you know, that Republicans are to blame for this too, only to the hardcore partisans who are listening. Um, it, it demonstrated that they don't really understand inflation and they're just gonna try to pass this off on Republicans and make this a choice election around inflation and say, well, you know, what are their, what are their policies? Um, which is stupid for a variety of reasons. The first being that they're conv- communicating that they don't know what they're doing. The second is that they're just handing Republicans a microphone and they say, hey, what's your plan? At which point they will expound upon the plan. Uh, the first obviously being what you shouldn't have done, what you shouldn't have done was pass the American Rescue Plan, a $2 trillion uh, cash giveaway designed to stimulate an American economy that was already coming back, was already stimulated, put a lot of money in people's pockets and subsidized demand to a degree that was unsustainable because there wasn't enough supply of anything to meet that demand. And that's all inflation is. It's just too much money chasing after too few goods. And it depends on who you talk to. If it's the San Francisco Fed, it's about 0.3, 0.5% that it contributed to inflation. If you talk to some economists, it's north of 2 3 4%. But nobody says it wasn't inflationary. No longer is anybody talking about the idea that this is not inflationary. The second thing is that the Biden administration can do, and apologize for my monologue here, is to try to pare back some of these obnoxious efforts on the part of this administration to shore up their particular political constituencies with tariffs, some of which they inherited from the Trump administration, some they they 
prefer to make, which make goods more expensive at the expense of your wallets shoring up political constituencies that produce particular goods that this administration likes uh, and also ease back some of these controls on petroleum and what have you. And then ultimately, the last policy is one that nobody has any control over desi by design, and that's the Fed, and that's tightening money supply. And the, the prescription is going to be pain. You're going to feel that pain because the only way to make to reduce inflation, to reduce this imbalance of demand versus supply, is to make things more expensive by further reducing your purchasing power. Make money more expensive. Now, if Republicans are smart, they will say that, but they won't say that it's it's our desire for this to happen to you. You've been consigned to this horrible condition by democratic governance, 16 months of unified democratic governance. What strategy is this on the part of the Biden administration to give Republicans all the runway they need to make the case against democratic governance when it comes to inflation? It's, it's preposterous because there's hardly a more sort of classic core conservative mes message than Democrats spend too much and it's dangerous. I mean, to say, what, what, what do Republicans have to say in response to this? Everything they've been saying. And by the way, that's something else Republicans can say here is that first and first of all, we said this was going to happen. You said it wasn't. We saw it coming when you were denying it and then talking yeah. about it being transitory. Well, so that I think is it's such a winning message because it's true and everyone has experienced it as true while being told it was false by the same person who's now claiming he cares about inflation and how it impacts families. I was really struck. Meandering is an extremely kind way to describe Biden's presentation. Yeah, it was just it was a disaster. But one of the things he, he two things struck me. Uh, he's using the phrase like the MAGA Republicans is now a thing like it's going to be MAGA Republicans. I think ultra, he's MAGA. ultra MAGA Republicans, MAGA. but it was the it super was a, duper MAGA, a super duper. Yeah. <laughs> but he said this is what's wrong. He said Republicans in Congress are so deeply committed to protecting big corporations and CEOs that they would rather see taxes on working American families and try to depress their wages to take on inflation. So that struck me as wrongheaded for a number of reasons. Um, the, the attacking big business at a time when everyone knows that that uh, you know, is watching the leaders of big business often cave to, to progressive left woke demands. Like the average person is like, wait a minute, wasn't Disney just telling me that, you know, I can't say gay or something. So there's this idea, this idea that these people are not allied with the Democratic Party in terms of message and that they're actively trying to harm working families doesn't scan because for, as, as Abe said, there've been warnings about inflation and the main little projects that the Biden administration has been rolling out have been giveaways, not to working families, but to college educated, largely white groups of people who want all their student loans forgiven, who want everyone to drive an electric car, who have a whole worldview that has nothing to do with the ability to go to the grocery store week after week and still put food on the table for your family when the prices have skyrocketed. Somebody uh, sent me a, a, I thought it was a joke, but somebody sent me an image of what gas prices were on inauguration day versus what they are now. And people remember that. They feel it every week. I overheard some neighbors complaining um, about how their, their, uh, the, the, the cost of dry, just going anywhere to visit their grandkids is so extreme now. And these are people who are totally well off, but even they're feeling the, the pinch. So Having commuted into New York City today, I felt that acutely for the very first yes. time. I had a, I had a, a wistful pang for the uh, buck 98 
a gallon that we were paying in March and April. Right. Of it's almost five bucks now, almost five bucks a gallon in cities, at least. And that was artificial, obviously. And it was not, you know, it wasn't tethered to market demand. It was a, the result of an absolute crisis, obviously. However, you know, in living memory, uh, this wasn't uh, as bad as it was now. And actually, you remember, as far as gas prices go, I think it was a couple of months ago where the Biden administration was bragging about a two cent decrease in the average price of regular unleaded um, when, it, when it was it was upwards of four four dollars. And then they were saying, oh, well, it's coming down now because, you know, the, the supply chain's coming back on and you know, this trans- inflation is transitory, what have you. And they were really crowing about that. And now the 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 uh, rooster has come home to nest, as it were. Christine, you had an actually really interesting um, uh, thought there about the class politics i'm sorry I can continue briefly but i just i just yeah can, you i just want to add one 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 more sure. point that that the republicans can say and such an easy layup for them to say in, in response to this is thanks to us it's not as bad as it could be you you wanted to spend more <laughs> that's a that's another good point and it dovetails with i think what christine was saying before about sort of the antiquated class structure that Joe Biden was kind of hearkening to this idea of, you know, Republicans as big corporate interests guys that want to cut corporate taxes and they, they hate mean street and middle America. And we're looking out for the little guy and all that sort of uh, an idea of how the coalitions manifested the the dueling uh, political coalitions in this country manifested, I don't know, 15 years ago, uh, 10 years ago, perhaps, but definitely not in the last decade. There's been a real dramatic reversal, particularly when it comes to class politics. You have a much more populist Republican Party that is much more comfortable with economic protectionism, uh, much more comfortable with courting the working class, both its values and its economics. Uh, and you have a Democratic Party that is utterly beholden to a, um, a gentry class uh, that wants to see menthol cigarettes removed from stores and wants their student loans forgiven, uh, you know, half a dozen other very, very affluent concerns that they're seeing to on a semi-regular basis. And the idea that Republicans can't counter this message of they just want to raise your taxes as though that's, you know, that's, that's sort of a, a, a conception of the GOP as it existed in under George W. Bush and per, maybe even under Barack Obama in the early Tea Party years, but it hasn't been that way for a very long time. So he's speaking to a, a solipsistic idea of what political coalitions are these days, which is, as, as Abe just said, pretty easy to counter. Well, and he's not, you know who he's not speaking to? Uh, working class Hispanic voters who care a lot about things like, oh, I don't know, abortion, uh, working class white voters who don't send their kids to college and also cannot afford to buy, many of whom can't afford to buy homes right now and interest rates are only increasing on mortgages. When he does speak to those needs, it's always through the lens of identity politics. It's really interesting. He ran on being good old lunch pail Joe who understands what it's like you know, to sit at the kitchen table. This was all part of his campaign. But if you listen to his administration and even to him now, whenever he talks about like housing, for example, it's it's, you know, minorities don't aren't able to get houses. But he's really talking through the lens of kind of, um, you know, anti-racism speak about equity in a way that's targeting his African-American voting base. Fine. That's part of his coalition. But a lot of people who are being taken for granted in that coalition and they are moving, they're going to vote with their feet in November because he doesn't have anything to say to them. And he certainly doesn't have anything to say to families when things go totally off the rails. I mean, we were talking right before we started taping about the the um, formula, baby formula crisis in this country, which has been, if you if you are uh, people with young family members or you 
follow, I don't know, conservative media at all, you've heard about this for a while. Nobody in the Biden administration is talking about it. Lots of people probably have no idea it's going on. They just started to address it because it finally kind of bubbled up on probably on left Twitter somewhere. So he doesn't have a solution. He, he, he can't really tell us what he's doing with the supply chain crisis, which continues and will likely get worse uh, if, if stuff in China continues the way it is. So he just it's weird. And he stands up there in this kind of weird Potemkin stage with slogans behind him. And, and it's just people aren't buying it. They're not buying what he's selling. And, well, and, you know, and, you know, think of it. So what is he selling? Right. So they'll hold a uh, there'll be a press release and a story about a panel to crack down on Internet disinformation. Right. There's a baby formula shortage in this country. <laughs> I mean, the gap between what he's up to and what what real Americans are feeling is just growing and growing and growing and and they cannot close it no matter what they have this program that they're pushing forward and they will not veer from it and i i don't know if this registers as a political issue at all and much less if it does how it shakes out but you know one of the few constituencies that democrats still have a pretty firm lock on is um uh, women particularly white women um i don't know the delineation between mothers and non-mothers, I would suspect non-mothers are far more democratic, but you know, new mothers are the first to be affected by this, um, this shortage. And it's an acute concern, it's an urgent concern, and they probably retain many of their political sensibilities from the time that they spent as childless and carefree and socially liberal and inclined towards voting for Democrats. So to what extent do they resent the fact that they're all consuming universally important issue is just not being seen to because nobody understands it. Nobody knows what to do about it. And when you're an exhausted new mother, I, I speak from experience, the idea of having to either yourself strap your kids in the car or get a loved one to get in the car and drive a couple extra hours because the target in your nearby town is limiting the amount of baby formula you can buy. And so you, you waste a lot of mental energy worrying about it, emotional energy uh, concerned, and, and then just physical energy that especially when, again, when you've got a newborn is not something you have a lot of to spare. So I just think people don't forget those crisis moments, especially when they're tied to childbirth. And these numbers are extraordinary. I'm reading it, reading it here. About 40% of the top-selling baby formula products were out of stock during the week ending April 24th in the United States. And then there's this. Three quarters of babies in the United States receive some formula products within their first six months of life. I mean, yeah. this is a, actually a massive problem for them. It's a huge problem for everybody. <clears throat> and this morning, we're, as we're recording these... Um, consumer price index and inflation numbers just came out. Um, and you, you sense a little bit of a breath of a sigh of relief from inside the Beltway with its inclinations towards democratic politics, because well, they beat, well, they, they were worse than expectations as far as inflation goes. It wasn't as bad as March by two tenths of a point. Um, not something you're gonna feel, certainly. But you see a lot of you know people who follow this for a living and are as detached from uh, regular voters as you could possibly be and follow numbers exclusively exist as living computers that just generate uh, you know political uh, outcomes on a regular basis. They're, they're okay. Well, maybe things are getting better. I mean, this is what the Biden administration said: this would eventually subside, and people would start to feel the re the receding tide of inflation, 
and be grateful for it. I mean, this is one of the wishes, I, I suppose, more wish fathering the thought, but it's not impossible to imagine. But can you imagine how incredibly callous it would be for anybody to go out and say, well, inflation only came in two tenths of a point less than it did in March. Aren't you thrilled? Well, but the temptation will be there. Yeah. Well, that's where I, he ended the the press conference or whatever you want to call his weird thing yesterday, because he's like, you know, basically he doesn't do anything without teleprompters. I mean, I know conservatives used to sort of harp on Obama for always relying on the teleprompter. But this guy is always the reason he doesn't do Oval Office uh, speeches very often is that you can't get the teleprompters in there. Like he's very much tethered to his teleprompter. Fine. That's not something that I think is any that big a deal. That's just kind of part of our our culture now. But he said at the end, he said, we've got to start talking more about what these guys are about, meaning Republicans. And so, folks, we need to control the House and Senate and we can do it. I'm thinking wrong message. You guys have been in control like everybody. Again, it doesn't make sense to say the guys who are in charge are watching the economy tank under their watch. Let's give you more of that while calling the other guys the problem. It just it it doesn't scan with reality. But I'm sure that the administration is going to try to happy talk this, the, 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 the news, the new data point. Um, and I'm certain it's going to backfire. Not only, not only will no one believe it, it's, will no one believe it. It's not what you want to hear when you're suffering in the, in the situation that demonstrates that it's untrue. It's an insult to you. I mean, just sort of abandons the classic formula that you're trying to use when you, when you want a choice election that's not a referendum on the incumbent party in power is to really focus on particularly personalities. Personalities work really well when you're trying to frame it as a choice election between you and this unknown other quantity, but talking about their policies, you know, what they actually want to do. And Joe Biden hasn't done that. I mean, very explicitly, he's saying, well, we don't know what they want to do. And he's been saying that for a very long time. What's their plan? What are they for? What's their strategy? What are they going to do in inflation? What do they want to do here? This, that, and the other thing. So he can't frame the choice that way because he's saying it's kind of a mystery. And if it is a mystery, well, that's kind of exciting. Let's unfold the mystery. Let's see where this one goes. Uh, because you're not making it a referendum on their values, their, their preferences, their policies, or even their personalities. It's still a referendum on you because you haven't told them what they're going to do. I guess he doesn't know what they're going to do. Um, and that would be foolish, actually, to tell them what they're going to do. Let's just keep the mystery going and vote for us and we'll see what happens. That's the that's a Republican's best strategy. Uh, and that's sort of what you want to do when you're, you know, seeking corporate power, seeking seeking relevance and influence in the business world. Uh, and one of the things that can really shake you up when you're trying to run a business is HR issues. HR issues can absolutely kill you. Wrongful termination suits, minimum wage retirements, labor regulations. And HR management salaries are not cheap, an average of $72,000 a year. Well, there's a solution to all these problems. It's called Bambi, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E. And it was created very specifically for small businesses. You can get a dedicated HR manager, craft your own HR policy, and maintain your compliance all for just $99 per month. With Bambi, you can change HR from your biggest liability to your biggest strength. It's month to month, no hidden fees. You can cancel any time. You didn't start your business because you wanted to spend all your time on HR compliance. So let Bambi help. Get a free HR audit today. Go to Bambi.com commentary right now 
to schedule your, your free HR audit. That's Bambi.com slash commentary, spelled BAM to the B-E-E dot com slash commentary. Um, if inflation is one of the biggest issues, if not the biggest prohibitive issue heading into the midterm elections right now, uh, another sort of under the radar issue, in part because we were very focused on federal elections and this is more of a local issue, but nevertheless, one that is roiling contests across the country and is increasingly foremost on American minds is the issue of crime. Violent crime rates in this country continue to rise and Democrats have struggled with how to talk about this. Um, they, they sort of talked themselves into the notion that, well, we've abandoned the slogan of defund the police. So problem solved. Um, but the problem wasn't solved. And, and it's, it's not, I'm sorry, continue it. But it's not, briefly, it's not because of the slogan or the slogan had any particular resonance or relevance to the political debate. The slogan gave rise to a bunch of policies that uh, are still in effect and are still creating, contributing to this wave of violent crime for which Democrats are very much responsible. And what it has in common with inflation, actually, is that um, you cannot talk people out of it if they are experiencing it. You can't tell people that that they're not experiencing inflation or that they're safe when they don't feel safe. Um, So I read a story in The New York Times today um, that I thought was quite interesting. Headline is gun deaths surge during the pandemic's first year, the CDC reports. Now, we all knew this. Uh, the FBI data has been out for a long time, We've written about it. We knew, but now the CDC is, is weighing in. OK, so here's the time story. Gun deaths reached the highest number ever recorded in the United States in 2020, the first year of the pandemic, as gun related homicides surged by 35 percent. The CDC said, OK. Uh, it's the highest reported rate since 1994. Here's, here's where it gets interesting. Federal officials and outside experts were not certain what caused the surge in gun deaths. So then they float up, you know, so the isolation from the pandemic, gun sales were up. But gun homicide has many roots. Federal researchers also cited disruptions in routine health care, protests over police use of lethal force, a rise in domestic violence, inequitable access to health care, and longstanding systemic racism that has contributed to poor housing conditions, limited educational opportunities, and high poverty rates. There's a quote from Chuck Wexler, the executive director of the Police Executive Research Forum, which is a nonprofit that, that studies law enforcement. Something has happened to the American people during this two years that has taken violence to a new level. And the Times goes on to say, but there is no solid explanation for the decline or the rise. He added, in a sense, it's a mystery. It's, it's, a, it's the big question everyone wants the answer to. Everyone has a theory, but it's very hard to test theories. Absolutely nowhere in this piece about the great mystery that was gun violence and gun homicide in 2020 was defund mentioned, was, was, was the fact that there was a massive campaign not just against police violence, but against policing. Um, and within a month of the first post-George Floyd uh, protests, cities were, were slashing police, police forces uh, of millions of dollars. And 
there was a, in, in some cases, explicit, but an implicit sort of stand down order um, because that was that was the kind of the coin of the realm in, you know, social justice revolution 2020. Cops were bad. Law enforcement was bad. Not just implicit. We all watched it. Yes. We all watched the looting yeah. and the rioting outside this building where I'm sitting right now, where there was arson and uh, vandalism and violence. Police were cordoning off these elements to just let them burn off some steam like it was 1968. You it's know a big, what else? big mystery. You know what else they don't mention in this? Because it's true that uh, one of the factoids in there is that the, the, the gun violent, the gun homicide rate has been increasing since about 2016, you know, more rapidly. So it wasn't, it, it, it rapidly increased in the beginning of 2020, but it was already steadily rising and they couldn't figure out why. Here's, here are two reasons. The, the most recent rise, a lot of people, and this was covered in local newspapers all over the country and the <laughs> known mainstream media outlet that I know of, no place like the Times or the Post did any, as far as I can remember, did any sort of deep dive into this, although it's the kind of story they should do a deep dive into. Uh, if you talk to local police in a lot of smaller places like Norfolk, Virginia, place in the Pacific Northwest, what they said is a lot of people use their stimulus check to go out and buy a gun. Now they did it for a lot of reasons. If they were doing it to increase their activity as criminals, that's bad. If they're doing it because they felt unsafe because of the rise in crime, also bad. That just puts more guns in the street. It also increases the risk of people being able to successfully commit suicide, which is another cause of a very high number of gun homicide or gun, gun deaths are suicide. However, they also don't mention progressive prosecutors. I'll give DC as an example. Part of the reason we have a lot more homicides committed with guns in this city is that when people get caught committing a crime with a gun, they get they don't even pay for them. They just let it's catch and release, catch and release during COVID in particular. The pandemic was used as an excuse to empty a lot of the jails of people who otherwise should have been incarcerated and would have been off the streets. And now many, many times, I mean, there, there was a, a sort of carjacking incident here in D.C. recently where a guy got a gun shoved in his face. And they followed up with the prosecutor, kind of trying to figure out what you're going to do. Oh, no, well, he was the minor. We just let it go. We're not going to do anything. I mean, he'll be under supervision, whatever that means. So a lot of progressive prosecutors are not actually uh, doing their job and enforcing the law once they are arrested. If the cops do arrest some of these folks, they're not putting them behind bars where they belong and where they'll keep these violence rates down. And the, and the intellectual currents that led to sentencing and bail reforms to a, to a degree that's far too excessive. I'm sympathetic somewhat to uh, particularly decriminalization efforts of violent, nonviolent offenses. But we we decriminalized violent offenses. Yeah, and that is the majority of people in the state prison system. They are violent offenders, often violent repeat offenders. There aren't the, the myth of the decarceration advocates is that there are all these poor guys who were caught with a dime bag of weed and now they're serving right. a life sentence. That is not no true. arson, right. attempted murder. Man's attempted manslaughter is is a, a no no cash bail crime in so, the state of New York. You know, so the, the piece talks about uh, purchasing guns. You know why pe people why why gun purchases shot through the roof in 2020? Because cities were being looted and set on fire. I mean, I know people that in other states, New York, it's possible to get a gun. In other states, who you would ne who never in their lives. Would have would have thought about uh, keeping a weapon in their home. Went out and bought guns in 2020 because it was it was uh, mayhem. But we're now pre pretending that it wasn't. So I wanted to see um, a, a month by month breakdown of 2020 in terms of uh, gun violence and gun homicide, um, because then you could perhaps tease out the the different uh, factors. 
um, if it's if it was just merely pandemic isolation, which of course is a huge contributor to mental health problems of all sorts, um, then you'd expect that perhaps to endure, or um, or maybe uh, the homicide rate would ease up as as we were allowed to mingle and and meet more when when you know particular waves went down. So I found a month by month chart of 2020 um, provided by Everytown Research and Policy. And in fact, between March and June, uh, late, let's say, March through May of 2020, uh, gun injuries and gun deaths were mostly in keeping with uh, the numbers from 2019. They, were, they didn't look that different. Uh, sometimes they, were, they spiked above it. Sometimes they were a little below the year before. The second the chart hits June, the gun injuries and gun deaths go through the roof, totally unprecedented levels. What happened in June? Wasn't the pandemic getting worse in June? It was the entire post-George Floyd world of violence and looting and defunding the police and uh, excusing all of it. And that is exactly where this giant increase hit. So this touches on some themes that John has talked about and written about uh, extensively as sort of the resurgence of neoconservatism as a philosophical vehicle, is that what we're talking about is an arms race. Criminals started using a lot of guns and the people who didn't have a lot of guns started getting a lot of guns so they could deter criminal elements from using their guns against them, the law-abiding citizenry. And then we get into the progressive argument about crime because conventional Democrats have nothing to say on crime. Uh, you just go, and this isn't me saying that, just Google Democrats struggle uh, when it comes to crime and you will be rewarded with piece after piece on how Democrats are struggling to talk about crime, but not progressives. Progressives know how to talk about crime. Um, we've talked particularly about their policy prescriptions. But when it comes to neutralizing this as a political liability, what they talk about when they talk about crime is guns, getting guns off the streets, getting guns out of people's hands, interdicting weapons shipments to across state lines, all their other policy prescriptions that are you know, some, sometimes pie in the sky, sometimes blatantly unconstitutional, but otherwise focused on gun violence to at least a rhetorical degree. Um, that's a, not really a relevant or salient issue politically in the best of times. But when you're talking about the proliferation of weapons in the hands of law-abiding citizens because they believe it to be their first and last line of defense for themselves, what are they thinking? Who's this, the audience for this? This is important. This is a really important point. The language around these conversations, and we're even using ourselves because it's become ubiquitous. Uh, if you've been a victim of crime, having some progressive lecture you about gun violence, a gun didn't isn't why you were the victim. It was a human being, often a sociopathic person who should have been behind bars, who felt free to go ahead and, and assault you with a weapon or not because they knew they were they, they likely were not deterred by cops on the streets or consequences. I to the point of cops, 
the idea that if you just stop saying defund the police, it'll everything will go back to normal. We'll have cops on the street. The, the climate for law enforcement remains really, really toxic. And there was a statistic that was that like sent chills down my spine recently. Uh, the Chicago, it, it was uh, local Chicago news was putting a little chart up of, that was provided to them by the Chicago PD about the number of officers who had left the force versus the number who had joined. So in 2019, 619 officers left the Chicago PD and 444 joined. Flash forward to um, the fall of 2000, uh, 2021, 900 officers left, 51 officers joined. Those are not good statistics. They are statistics that you can replicate in a number of particularly big cities. Now it's become very hard to recruit and retain good officers. That is a weird um, fall on a follow on effect to the to the culture uh, war that was waged against law enforcement uh, for years, really. But but certainly post George Floyd became just terrible. So that's an on, that's going to continue. This problem will continue so long as that is the culture uh, for law enforcement in this country. They became the, the most despised element of our society for a year. I mean, yeah. well, then there's a mystery. As to, as to why there's a there's a, a rise in, in deaths involving firearms. And this is such a local issue. <clears throat> there's not really very much that the federal government can do when it comes to local crime. Um, but to the extent that Democrats are emblematic of this sort of thing, it will they will suffer for it, um, part because their compatriots are presiding over the dark blue cities where this is happening. <clears throat> Sorry, that's just the fates. Um, and so I, before we end this podcast, I kind of want to end on a note that's uh, similar to that, because this just came across my transom and I have to bring it to you guys because it's pretty funny. Fairleigh Dickinson University, my alma mater's sister school right down the street, um, produced a poll this morning showing that Joe Biden has a job approval rating of 38 percent. That's not good, but it's not out of the realm of what he normally draws. He's, he's a rather unpopular political figure. But why is he an unpopular political figure? Fairleigh Dickinson University has an idea. They maintain that it is a, there is a belief in the idea uh, predominant among the people who disapprove of Joe Biden's um, record in office in Green Lanternism which is a reference to the DC comic superhero whose power is limited only by his willpower. And it has become a major obstacle for Joe Biden and Democrats heading into the 2022 midterm elections. This theory was bandied about in the second term of Barack Obama. I remember it pretty well. It maintains that the people who disapprove of the president's behavior in office only do so because they have wildly unrealistic expectations of what the president can do. They want him to just materialize at will via his green ring, whatever they want. And that's just not how the American system works. The president is encumbered by so many other constraints, foremost among them, the existence of Republicans. Their, their very conception of, a, of an opposition party is the obstacle to you realizing all your hopes and dreams and certainly everything that Barack Obama can do. To apply this to Joe Biden sacrifices whatever legitimacy there was to that argument, which was negligible to begin with, because the argument was, main, was, was issued by people who perceived themselves to be smart, competent, rational Democrats. When Republicans held both chambers of Congress after 20, this was around 2015, when Republicans had already retaken the Senate and they held the House, and 
Barack Obama was legitimately constrained by Article One of the Constitution. The, the, the legislature was held by the opposition party and they prevented him from doing just about anything he could, wanted to do outside of executive fiat. That is not Joe Biden's problem right now. So you're left with not Green Lanternism. I'm trying to think of a spectacularly incompetent DC Comics hero, but you need a DC Comics superhero who is limited by his utter incapacity to navigate his environment. It's not much of a superhero, so that probably doesn't even exist. But if we had one, that would be Joe Bidenism. It's just foolish to me to even attempt to try to to leverage unrealistic expectations on the part of voters to the idea that Joe Biden is is hindered is you know he's he's just tied down by all these lilliputians but it's been it's been a theme for a long time from his administration that the american people are constantly disappointing him rather than the other way around and when they cannot ram through something that that is not something that the american people want or even moderate members of their own party will will uh enact then the institution itself has to be attacked right so if they don't get their way we need to bust no more filibuster if we don't get their way in the courts, let's get rid of the court. I mean, there's a weird, the, 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 the swing from you're disappointing me because you're not agreeing with me to total abolition of the institutions of governments and the balance of powers is, is common now. It's like every other news cycle, we see some version of this. And again, the average person looks at that and go, wait a minute, well, do we really need to destroy the Supreme Court over this? Maybe we, <laughs> oh. it's extremism. It's a kind of extremism that, that weirdly the other side of the aisle is often accused of and sometimes correctly accused of, but there's a version of it on the left and, and Biden's suffering the consequences of that. I mean, what is true about uh, Barack Obama and and the, the sort of feelings that his that his supporters, a lot of them came to came to have um, in the in his second term and sort of throughout, but by the end of it all, um, Obama, when he first started running and when he was elected, was he was the subject of a kind of wild adoration where whereby his 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 base thought he was some sort of superhuman um, who was going to deliver the country into God knows what kind of uh, golden age. And he did turn out to be a man who could do some things and couldn't do others and lied about some things and so on. Um, so that was a genuine sort of letdown for them because they expected the extraordinary. No one expected the extraordinary from Joe Biden. They, 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 what they wanted, in fact, was they didn't want extraordinary. They wanted steady, even, let's get back to something resembling normal. And they've been disappointed because he can't do that. He can't, he can't, he can't come in at the bare minimum. That's a really good point. Um, and sort of a, a really smart way to attack this idea. Um, professor over at Fairleigh Dickinson, who, who I like quite a bit, and he's a really sharp guy, nice guy, good pollster, Dan Casino. So I'm not attacking him here, but he has a quote in this piece. Uh, to get his approval up, Biden needs to convince both sides that he simply can't get much done. Um, and he knows that he says that that's not a very inspiring campaign message. Uh, but it's not, as we say, he what, it's, an, it's an indictment of yourself to say at this stage of your presidency, you can't get very much done. You're, you're, it, you're encumbered by only the limits of your own faculties. Well, and that's why it's a dangerous message for Biden in particular. Questions about his competency and his ability and his faculties are on everyone's mind every time he sets foot in front of a camera. So I would I would not that would be re especially bad messaging for him. 
All right. So we're going to talk a little bit more, I think, about Republicans tomorrow because we're going to have some uh, political gurus on to talk about some of the primaries that happened last night, I think, and um, the resurgence of the ultra magas in the populist wing of the Republican Party that are coming back. You know, there's there's some uh, just briefly before we get away from this, just to have a note on this. And I think John will have a lot of thoughts to say on this when he comes back to the podcast. But there were some primary victories last night, some cut towards Donald Trump and his endorsements and his, his power to endorse some away from them. And, and obviously the narrative in the Beltway is all Trump, Trump, Trump. It's all about Trump. Um, un, quite unlike Ohio, just about every contest that unfolded last night had very little to do with Donald Trump. You can fairly say that Trump's endorsement of J.D. Vance in Ohio absolutely moved the needle in his direction. It was a crowded field and allowed this particular candidate to differentiate himself in ways that he previously had been unable to, and all of his competitors had been unable to, because they were all vying for the same vote uh, with the same personality type. Um, in this case, you had some Republicans who, who were targeted very directly by Donald Trump, uh, one in, in Nebraska's second district, which is a, a Democratic-leaning district, uh, much more of a National Review-type conservative guy. Uh, and then in West Virginia, some more populist uh, MAGA types one, which is probably not outside the realm for, for West Virginia. But it just strikes me to make this all about Donald Trump sort of misses the mark in a way that I think reflects more the insularity of the of the political class than a real astute analysis of the factors on the ground driving the vote because they're trying to vote vote because I don't think um, you know uh, populist political sensibilities and certainly 2024 is what was moving the needle in West Virginia or Nebraska uh, we'll probably have more to say about that when it comes to Pennsylvania which will be a much more clarifying contest um, but anyway we'll talk more about that tomorrow and I hope you all will join us for that conversation. Uh, in the meantime, be well uh, for the absent John Podhoritz, who is still in our thoughts uh, and prayers, and we will uh, see him later today and report back to you. Uh, and also for Abe and Christine, I'm Noah Rothman. Keep the candle burning. <laughs>